The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. We live in an age of austerity, or so the politicians tell us. But where should the axe fall? In the digital age, with the world's store of knowledge seemingly only a search away, the nebulous positives of a public library service have often seemed the soft sacrifice. Here in the UK, local councils find themselves simultaneously under a legal obligation to provide comprehensive and efficient service and starved of the funds from central government that would allow them to do so a conundrum which has been answered over the last five years with closures, reductions in opening hours and whole libraries being handed over to enthusiastic amateurs. How are libraries holding up to the pressure? And do they still matter in the age of the internet? We'll be discussing the current crisis with a panel of experts and exploring how Manchester librarians are trying to knit volunteers into a citywide library network. But with one of the world's great libraries right here on our doorstep in King's Cross, we thought we'd start by delving into the stacks at the British Library. Richard Lee went in search of some reading matter concerning a certain newspaper. So, let's click on the catalogues and type in C. P. Scott. For making the Manchester Guardian 10861.de.24, which is to say, right here in the British Library. Let's see if we can get it up to Humanities One. We've successfully submitted our request. That should be with us in about an hour or so. The history of the Manchester Guardian is one of over 150 million items held by the British Library so that students, researchers or ordinary members of the public like me can consult them in reading rooms here at St Pancras or at Boston Spa in West Yorkshire. Underneath our feet are basements which extend down 24 and a half metres into the London clay A hidden empire which holds a collection with its roots in the 18th century. A collection that is still filling shelves at the mind-boggling rate of 12 kilometres a year. But where exactly is General Reference 10861.de.24? And how does our History of the Guardian make its journey from those subterranean depths below to the light and airy spaces of Humanities One? So we're walking now through the underbelly of the British Library in a surprisingly clean and fairly well lit brightly painted basement and above our heads are the machines which are taking the trays with the books from the stacks up to the reading rooms. You can hear them whirring away as um, all that information and knowledge is dispersed around the building. Mm. 
my name is Calvin Eli and I'm the Basement Free Collection Delivery Manager. So where are we now, Calvin? Okay, so we're in the Basement Free section office. The ticket's just printed out. The ticket will go into the book and now we're going to start the process of sending that item up to the reading room. Basement Free is the biggest storage area in the library. So if you were to work it out, it would be the equivalent of seven Wembley football fields. Just in terms of space, we stretch right up to St Pancras Station. You've got the trains almost rolling above your heads here. How yeah. far down are we? We're 60 feet underground, and it's amazing actually because you can actually hear the Victoria line rumbling at certain points throughout the day. Is there also a certain amount of looking after the books that you're doing as well? Yes, we do. We have projects where we have to spot check certain items, and if they're in a fragile state, then we will send those off to the appropriate department. It is key, you know, we, we are dealing with the national collections and, you know, from a preservation point of view, we want to ensure that as many future researchers and, and users have the opportunity to view the physical item. So you spend most of your working life underground. What's it like being <laughs> 60 feet under all the time? You do get used to it after a while. You know, it's, it's just a normal working day for me, basically. I, f- I think I've got enough to do to worry about seeing, uh, seeing the sunlight. So it's, uh, it is very enjoyable down here. And also, you know, the staff, they are used to it. So it's, it's basically just a normal working day. You don't feel the weight of all those books pressing down on you? <laughs> um, so sometimes, you know, sometimes I've, I may feel a bit enclosed down here, but it's a fantastic place to work. It's airy, it's bright... So, so it is a, really, it is a lovely place to work. So how many orders do you get every day, on a typical day? We get approximately between 11 to 1,200 tickets a day. So, just in this basement? Yes, just in this basement here. So you can imagine how busy the actual basement is with our users ordering material from this storage area. OK, so we are in now um, basement three, and we're in compartment five. The range is 429. It does actually print out on the ticket, so when we do receive the request the library assistants can go straight to that section and actually retrieve the book so it does make the job a lot lot easier and also it does improve efficiency within the storage area so all these shelves here these are all books of a certain subject or books from a certain era how are they organized down here okay so these items are a mixture of different subjects and also the year as well so we have 18th century items down here 18th and early 19th century material so where is C.P. Scott now? Where is he? Okay, so C.P. Scott is just here. Okay, so, so what now... What shape's he in? Is he looking all right? Okay, let's, it, he's in perfect condition and it can go up to the reading rooms. The ticket will now go on the shelf. Okay. So you're just slotting the piece of plastic in with the yes. details that somebody's ordered that back in so that another colleague walking along will see that that's on the shelf if yes, they need that, to. Yes, that's correct. And when it comes to replacing the item also, we can actually see where the book was originally and, it, and it'll go back in that exact spot. About how many books have you got on the shelves down here at St Pancras? In this basement, I believe that there's just over half a million. That's in basement three alone. And so and then there's another three or four more basements, is that right? Yes, there are four basements here, and each basement holds different collection items. For example, basement four would hold maps. It's clearly a kind of gargantuan effort to keep all this stuff safe and to give it out at the relevant time, put it back and make sure it's all kept. Is this really necessary in a digital age to keep these bits of dead trees down here? 
Yes, absolutely. You know, because our users like to see the physical items as well on some digital stuff. You can't get the fill, even though you can visually see the writing or some other bits. It can be pleasing to actually hold the item. And, and that's what I found when I've spoken to customers upstairs. And it's also maybe of actual value in terms of you'll get information by seeing an actual copy that you wouldn't be able to get online? Or is that, is that just a romantic notion? I think, you know, when you hold the physical item in your hands, I think it's more pleasing. And also you get that kind of buzz of holding that, you know, especially the older material. Whereas w- with the digital stuff, you can look at it on a computer screen here. But I feel that you can't get that connection, whereas when you're holding something which is early 18th century, it's got that kind of wow factor to it. So now I'm going to scan this book here. We use a tracking system and it's called the ABRS. So that's the Automated Book Retrieval System. This allows us to track the item. So I'm just going to scan the item here. And now on the screen, it says en route to issue desk. So that means that this book is good to go. Now I'm going to place this item into a skip and it's going to go up via the MBHS, which is the mechanical book handling system. So I'm just going to do that now. Okay, so this item has been requested for the humanities reading rooms. We do have barcodes, so the crates can be tracked. And now I'm going to scan the location. So the location is humanities one. Okay, and now it's ready to go upstairs. That's going on the rollers now. The actual journey time is is 15 minutes. So from the basement, which is 60 foot beneath the street, it takes roughly about 15 minutes to to reach Humanities 1. When it does reach Humanities 1, the team upstairs, they have library assistants who are waiting to collect the item. The item will be scanned and... um, the user will be informed once the item is on the shelf that the book is here and ready to pick up. So we're now on our way back up from the basement to the light and airy spaces up above and just above our heads in this kind of ductwork here are all the, the machines which are taking the books up to the reading room. So we, we've got C.P. Scott is somewhere on one of these sets of rollers and his little red plastic tray with his green protective mat whirring his way up to Humanities One. Floor One. Humanities Floor One. Rare books and music. Doors opening. My name is Elias. I'm a library assistant here at Humanities One at the British Library. Right, so now we are at the uh, what we call the back office of the Humanities Reading Room. Once the books there are sent from the uh, basements, they are sent to a little room here behind where they are sorted out by name and then we scan them so readers, they know that the books are waiting here and then we put them on the shelves just waiting for the reader to come and pick them up. And how many books do you give out a day in Humanities 1? Well, it's quite hard, but normally the report is like in the tens of thousands on a, on a busy day, yeah. Do you get to know your regulars, the people who use the reading room all the time? Oh yes, definitely. Many people, researchers, their job is to come here at the library and do research. So they'll literally stay here like nine to five. So definitely we get to have some relationships. We build relationships with the uh, with readers, with regular readers that come here. Do you get a few characters maybe? Oh yes, definitely, definitely. One, once you start to know their little personality traits, it's definitely you start to like them quite a lot. Yeah, definitely. So where are we going to find our C.P. Scott 
Right, yeah, so if you follow me, we'll just go to this uh, MBHS room, which is where the books come up. So let's come on over here. So yeah, there's a conveyor belt. This is the sound that you might be listening to now at the moment. Again, once the uh, books are placed in red crates in the uh, storage areas, uh, they are scanned and they are sent through this mechanic system, which is basically like the guts of the library. And they end up in this uh, reading room. Again, once again, we just um, scan them here. So um, shortly we might hear the uh, lovely bell that let us know that we've got work coming in. <laughs> Sometimes when readers, they order a book, maybe it's not that straightforward. Somebody will go to the shelf and the book, for one reason or the other, is not there. So they will send a ticket with all the details from the request, um, the reader's name and number and the date. And then they will write what's the reason why the book is not here. It can be that sometimes the, the library, they loan items to other institutions, not only to individual readers, we will loan to another libraries or research institutions. So, for instance, we'll get a ticket saying, like, this book has been lent to an external user, which is the lingo that we use here. And it tells the reader to apply within a certain amount of time. <laughs> Guys, it's there. Oh, yes. I totally missed that. So we've been, we've been um, talking all this time, and, and, and there he is, just right there on this, on this trolley. C.P. Scott, it says. Like, should, we, should we see if we can issue the book? Yeah, definitely. Right, so we can go to the uh, issue desk. Uh, we're going to get you a desk, just sit, and so we can issue the book for you. Right, Richard, so we're going to issue your book here. If the library's mission is to deliver the collection to its user, here we're very much at the forefront of it. One of the things that I like about working here is being in contact with the library users and know that once the book leaves my hand and goes onto the desk of the reader, there's a very much a different process coming in. It's very much where the impact of the library is felt. So here it is. C.P. Scott, 1846 to 1932, The Making of the Manchester Guardian. A nice dark green copy in perfect condition. What I need to do is sit down and read it. A hundred years is a long time. It is a long time even in the life of a newspaper. And to look back on it is to take in not only a vast development in the thing itself but a great slice in the life of the nation, in the progress and adjustment of the world. In the general development With C.P. Scott's words ringing in our ears, it's time to head to Manchester, whose central library was built in the decade following Scott's famous declaration that comment is free, but facts are sacred. Reopened last year after a £50 million revamp, it is now the beating heart of a library network that stretches all across the city. Do you use the local library here at Barnum Hall? Yes, I do. What do you use it for? Just going, like, sitting down and reading and everything like that, you know, and company, and I go there every Wednesday to keep fit. Yeah, my kids are there right now. It's very busy and very friendly. This library, locally, they are doing a good job. I think the volunteers are really good and very professional and great. We've been to the old library, not the new one. What would it take for you to go into the library? Well, curious, but I'll probably have a look now that I've spoke to you. 
as austerity bites, councillors up and down the country have taken chunks out of library services. Almost 300 of the nation's 4,500 libraries have shut their doors since the coalition took over in 2010. With visitor numbers continuing to slide from 322 million in 2010 to 282 million last year. Even the libraries that remain open are under pressure, with opening hours reduced and professionals handing over to an army of volunteers. After two static and four mobile libraries closed back in 2011, Manchester is still left with 23 public libraries, though six are now largely run by volunteers. But the jewel in Manchester's crown is the Central Library, which reopened last year after a £50 million refurbishment. For Neil McInnes, Manchester's Head of Library and Information Services, one of the guiding principles to this project was opening the library up to the people who want to use it. They were in Shakespeare Hall, which is the main entrance to Manchester Central Library. And as part of the transformation programme, we've restored this beautiful hall back to how it looked in 1934 when the library first opened. This is, I say, the main entrance to the library. And part of the project was about breaking down the walls, breaking down the barriers, encouraging people to explore and discover the library as a space, but also the fantastic collections and services that we have to offer. Above us on the ceiling, it's like a triple height ceiling, we see the seals of Manchester, some of the coats of arms of the city. We also have the fantastic Shakespeare window. During the transformation, the stained glass was taken out piece by piece, shipped off to Cheshire, where it was tastefully restored and reinstated for the library opening last year. We also have the gateway into the Archives Plus space with a range of different collections brought together to showcase and tell the history of the city. Yeah, but there's not just that one route, is there? There's ways off into the library in all directions. There's about seven different access points here that encourage you to explore, discover and find. In the old library, people only went to their space and then left. What we're trying to encourage is people to connect and discover exactly what's on offer. So where are we now? OK, we're standing outside the Wolfson reading room because it's effectively a whispering gallery and there are 11 reverberations in this room. So if you talk, your voice will carry uh, several, several distances. Basically, the reading room has been taken back to almost how it looked in 1934. It is the sole place in the library that is dedicated to tranquil study. And what we see before us are approximately 300 young people studying. And do you have to spend a lot of time telling them to shut up? The room isn't staffed and actually the room polices itself. One, because of the echo. But two, if we were to be having this conversation in the room, there'd be at least one of those young people who would come up and tap us on the shoulder and ask us to be quiet. And it's fantastic to see that A, young people want a space like that, but B, that we're able to provide it. It's a kind of glorious space with the, with the light flooding in from the ceiling. And there's some books around the outside. What are they? That's a range of periodicals. So we looked at um, some of the stuff that was coming up from the stack 
that was most heavily used. And what we'll continue to do is monitor the usage of that material to ensure that we've got the most relevant material on display. So the stock is continually being monitored throughout the lifetime of the, the library. These people have mostly brought in their own textbooks or whatever and are using that and the internet to do their study. Yeah, I mean, we've got free Wi-Fi in the library from the moment we open to the moment we close. Most people have brought in their own material and are enjoying and using the space. So where should we go next? I think we should go down to the lending library and down to the children's library. Okay, we're now in City Library, which is the large lending library that we've created in the Town Hall Extension. And standing right by the literature shelves. Yep, we're at the 800s um, here at the literature section. And so this is now a lending library? Yeah, I mean, basically what we wanted to create was a large city centre lending library. And we've had a major investment in the lending collection here and we've seen the uptake of lending and borrowing increase, not just with customers from the city centre, but from people coming from outlying districts. And likewise, the collection here supports and complements the collection across the city. So literally the books are flying across the city. But it all looks amazing. What kind of feedback have you been getting from library users? The feedback from library customers and visitors to the library has been phenomenal. Uh, on the day we opened, on the 22nd of March last year, over 5,000 people came through the door and we are now having over 100,000 people per month visiting the library. So it's been a tremendous, tremendous success. The yeah, place is clearly absolutely rammed. I mean, visitor numbers are, are up hugely. Yeah, we're about 1.3 million visitors per year and we intend to increase that. So there will shortly be a, a new entrance to the library opening through Library Walk and I reckon when that opens, visitor numbers will absolutely go through the roof. That's against a kind of picture across the UK of falling visits down 2% in the last year alone. I mean, 228 million visits from 2012 to 2013 to 282 million visits in 2013-2014. You're kind of bucking the trend. Yes, certainly. I mean, the, the aim was to ensure that Manchester Central Library was a 21st century library fit for purpose in order to serve our residents and visitors to the city. And what about book borrowing? Are you getting increasive issues as well? In this library we're seeing increasing issues and across the estate probably library issues are actually holding their own. But despite the marble and the oak panelling, the interactive screens and the painted ceiling, all is not well in Manchester, according to the novelist and library campaigner Alan Gibbons. We met up at Barlow Moor in South Manchester, where the community association has run the local library since last spring. Well, I mean, first impression, it's bright, it's airy, it's renovated, it's new. It's a good-looking building, and there's a book stop, yeah? We've got fiction, obviously we've got sport, it is Manchester. We've got a bank of computers, we've got some periodicals, probably freebies. Smallish, you know. There's uh, a kids' section over there, should we go check that yeah. out? Yeah, well, it's a standard setup, so we've got junior and young adult fiction. Again, numbers not huge, but they're attractively displayed. It is only a small local library. Uh, not much different to a, a council-run branch library at first view. Oh, yeah, this is your territory, isn't it? This is my territory. So I'm in there. That's junior fiction. I mean, there's four racks. I and mean, in terms of young adult fiction, there's actually very little. Twilight, Robert Muchamore, the usual Darren Shan, you know. Not yeah, the there's, there's Geek Girl there. Yeah, there's Geek Girl, yeah. So it's got most of the books that you can't expect that are really high-profile ones. But, I mean, to be honest, you need a much bigger range, you know. What are the dangers of deprofessionalising the library service? 
Well, the biggest danger is a library is a lot more than just stamping books. I mean, there have to be storytelling sessions, there have to be local history groups, there has to be archives, there has to be a range of activities, and usually that is a professional librarian. If people go to Aberystwyth and do a three-year degree, it does imply that volunteers can keep a place open, but actually you need a lot more from a library, and that's the danger of it going. I mean, the number of volunteers has gone up to 35,000 from uh, something 18,000 and that is an exponential rise there has always been volunteers helping out but if you actually don't have a trained librarian at all in a library then the nature of the service changes fundamentally and sadly the politicians just don't recognize that that's the reality the problem is or there's also problems been raised about people who've got religious or political agendas they want to further or data protection issues or, or just I mean that difference between someone who knows the books knows the library knows the community well and, and somebody who's doing it as a hobby yeah, and child protection issues as well, because if you have somebody with spent convictions, they could potentially still be a volunteer. There's all sorts of things. I mean, I suspect that's going to be rare, but it is a possibility, and it's that range of things. The other big thing, like you say, is generally when you talk to librarians who've been trained or experienced in the job, they are reading the books. They can recommend books to children. And that's what you do see here, that there is very restricted stock. The huge issue, stock has been slashed year after year. I mean, to be honest, since the 1970s and the first Thatcher cuts came in, but that's been accelerating dramatically. And if you have a librarian who's saying to a kid, oh, you must read the latest Michael Grant, you really should have a look at the latest novel from Melvin Burgess or something, that's an active library. That's a library that's switched on with the best will in the world. I mean, most volunteers are not going to be able to do that sort of thing. It's not part of their professional remit. They've got other demands on their time. And that is what you mean by a professional librarian. That's been undermined that librarians have been replaced by library assistants, librarian assistants then replaced by volunteers. We're undermining the whole nature of a professional council-run service. There's early indications that some of the visitor numbers have fallen dramatically in some volunteer-run libraries. I mean, is that something that you've seen widely? Yeah, a couple of volunteer libraries have closed apparently in Warwickshire already because they fall over just by not being enough professionals about. It's retired professionals that keep it going. Jim Brooks, who actually runs a very successful volunteer library down south in Buckinghamshire, I mean, he said he wanted to keep a council-run service. He says you need huge numbers of ex-professionals to be able to keep a library going, spending sort of 24-7 working on it. In a lot of areas, that's not going to be about. That's the reality. It's just not going to be there. There isn't that infrastructure, particularly in working-class and deprived communities. That just isn't there. And so what you then get is a postcode lottery of provision. So how would you characterise the changes of the last five years or so? Change in the last five years are catastrophic. I mean, there's a lack of respect for librarianship and there's a lack of respect for local communities. So, I mean, when you talk about the numbers, the indications are that in Manchester it's gone down, according to the Manchester Evening News, by a factor of 90%. And that is huge. In Liverpool, they were talking about closing 11 libraries. We've been fighting a rearguard action. I live over there now. In Birmingham, you have a state-of-the-art library built cutting half the staff, slashing the opening hours. And this is in what was... It was opened by the Malala Yousaf site. It was a real big deal, a state-of-the-art, beautiful, you know, temple of the book. And that can be reduced to basically a warehouse with very few services within a year. And David Cameron actually had the goal to go along and blame the local council when actually he has slashed the whole funding for libraries with catastrophic and ill-considered austerity cuts.
So in this age of austerity, um, with librarians down and libraries down, opening hours down, visits down, book borrowing down, what, what's the future for libraries in the UK? Well, I think the first thing I'd say, take a look at this election. Austerity was old kidology. Suddenly there's £25 billion of actually unspecified spending from this government. So one minute they say there's no money. You can't even talk about money. Suddenly there's £7 billion for tax cuts. There's £8 billion for the National Health Service. Spending is always flexible. And this is a rich country. It's the seventh richest country in the world. That's the first thing that's got to be said. If it continues like this, Mayor Anderson in Liverpool has said all that will be left is the Central Library. For Phil Davis, director of Barlow Moor Community Association, the decision to take over the running of the local library was driven by a combination of factors. If you visited this site five years ago, you would have found a small community centre and a large piece of open ground. Because what happened a couple of years previous to that is that uh, some yobbos decided they would burn down the old library and there was nothing on this site for several years. There were various plans that uh, people had from combining it with the surgery, the medical centre, but nothing actually came to fruition. And then we came to, uh, dare I say this, the bedroom tax. And our local housing association, which is Southway, was in need of a number of small properties, you know, one and two bedroom flats. At the same time, we needed to look at a library in the area and we needed to look at how we would locate the uh, community association. And these things all came together in that Southway talked to Manchester City Council and came to an agreement that they could build on this site, they could provide the flats they needed as long as they also provided the accommodation for the community centre and, most importantly for this, the local library. We have a team of volunteers who uh, were not just walked in off the street, they were interviewed, they were checked and so on and got some very good people from local residents. chap used to run the post office for instance, there's a lady from Russia who used to work with children when she was there. A whole range of different people who came in, were interviewed, passed their interviews. So it's a quality volunteer service, it's not just you know anybody who fancies doing it. What do you think the difference is between a library run by professional librarians and one with volunteers involved? Well, I'm a bit biased here because I used to be a school librarian (laughs) and uh, I believe you need proper professional librarians to run a good library. But it's a question of costings. Now, Manchester have been hit very hard with Tory cuts and as a result they've had to cut back on library provision. For a time, the library was located in a shop across the road from the community centre, but even that became, as far as they were concerned, not to be affordable. And so this scheme, and you know, I do have my objections to it, as you've obviously got from what I've just said, this scheme is uh, the best we can do for the community, keeping a library in the community with a lot of enthusiastic volunteers doing a lot of different things, But, I mean, the actual skills of, say, ordering books and presenting books and so on, perhaps is better done by a professional librarian. Say you've got that little bit of extra money and you're able to spend it in the library. Would you spend it on buying some more books, a bit more space, or would you spend it on a professional librarian full-time? Well, we haven't got very much more space and there's no... So I would say, yes, a professional librarian who would be enthusiastic for this kind of work in this kind of area with this kind of library. According to Joyce Belay, Learning and Libraries Coordinator at Barlow Moor, the library has been going from strength to strength. One of the main advantages, I would say, 
is just that the volunteers have got more time. So they've got the motivation to help people and they've got the time to do it. So I'm not saying that library staff don't have the motivation to help people, but the volunteers have got the time to do that. We are very happy with the support that we've been given and the fact that gradually there's an increase, a gradual increase in the footfall. We're in a far better position you know, a year down the line than we were when we first started because the volunteers are much more confident with the provision. And also, I think the families also recognise that it is great to be able to share books with the children. So I think having something specific to be able to offer, such as the Saturday story time, is a great way forward. But you need to be able to embed the confidence and the training and, you know, have the time to be able to put something on. Volunteer John Parr finds it very rewarding to work at Barlow Moor Community Library. Well, at times it can be peaceful, like today there's not many people in because it's a working day. Saturdays can vary from being relatively busy to packed out, particularly when there's story time. Or sometimes we have special events on like a spring fair and then the whole place is really buzzing with people. How many hours do you usually work a week? It's currently five hours a week. And is that fairly typical of the other people volunteering? It is. We have some people come along at various times in the week, either morning or afternoon, and they round about two and a half hours each. Did you have to do lots of training before you started? Not very much. There's a person who is a librarian who comes along just to show us the whole library and give us a, a quick talk through what kind of things are done in the library. But a lot of it is learning on the job, sure. learning how to, how to sort the books out and, and so on and, and check the books off. Do you enjoy working here? Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, but even though you enjoy it, and it's kind of it's a lovely space you've got here with you know, all this light coming through and you know very bright and friendly, would you rather the library was run by professionals, or do you think it's better as a volunteer? I've got some difficulty with that because, in effect, what's happening is because of all the cutbacks that have to be made, then unfortunately some paid library people are leaving, uh, maybe by voluntary thing. And then people like myself come along because we want to see a, a local community service still being made, so we volunteer to do the job for free. For Neil McInnes, there's no reason why a community library can't give readers a good service. I mean, we do operate a hub-and-spoke model. We have a, a clear library strategy for the city that will see a network of high-quality, sustainable neighbourhood libraries supported by a number of community libraries as well. So we've adopted a tiered and layered approach to library services that results in 99.5% of our residents being within 1.5 miles of a library. The Manchester Evening News reported earlier this year there were catastrophic drops in visitor numbers in Northenden, Miles Platting and Barlow Moor with some of their figures suggesting declines of 80 or 90% in terms of visitors coming through the door. Can those figures be right? We have. I mean, we've introduced a new operating model at some libraries across the city, which has meant that we've retained a library presence in those areas. There has been some reductions, but we are working hard with local teams, with local partners, local communities to see how we can improve on those and developing action plans for those libraries to improve performance. 
since volunteer libraries or volunteer librarians are kind of part of your model, what steps have you already taken to address concerns about maintaining neutrality instead of pursuing some kind of political or religious agenda? And, or indeed, uh, worries about data protection? The libraries in which we have support from volunteers and other agencies have no access to the staff site of the library management system. Our libraries are supported by a dedicated member of library staff as well who work with those volunteers. So if they're deciding which books they're going to buy or what kind of event they're organising, there's a kind of professional librarian in charge of that? All library stock is selected by the library's team. We have a city-wide stock with libraries that are bought for the city and then circulated round. Customers can reserve any item online, either in their library or at home or on their device, on their app, uh, and we will then deliver it to the library of their choice. We have on occasions worked with community groups and some of our friends of groups on book buying where they have selected material with the supervision of a library member staff. Do you find that people are getting books delivered to their local library or do you find that they're going further afield exploring other libraries? A bit of both. The majority of reservations now are placed online. So that's people browsing probably at home and selecting the material they want and then choosing which library is most convenient for them to visit. Our phone app, you can now scan an ISBN barcode wherever you find the book and it will automatically tell you whether the book is in Manchester libraries and you there and then can place a reservation for it and again choose which library you wish to pick that up from. So we're trying to make it as easy for our customers to access books and for where they access those books. You've managed all of this in this really quite difficult financial environment. If you find yourself with a little bit of extra money in in the kitty after the election, what would you spend it on? Would you spend it on putting more professional librarians back in local libraries or increasing opening hours or buying more books? I think what we're looking at is we're looking at new ways of working where there are new opportunities for us to improve services, to offer new services. And what we're keen to do now is look at how other agencies can use our libraries to deliver activity. So I often talk about how we have 22 cultural venues or arts venues in the city. They're called libraries. So how could other organisations use our space that starts to drive and increase and maximise footfall? And that way it gets people into libraries, hopefully then to encourage them to read, to access the range of collections through different means. There's books and stocks, in fact, a bit of a sore point here with some at the Central Library, where 240,000 books, uh, which some estimate comes to be somewhere around 40 to 60% of your reference holdings, were disposed of during the refurbishment. What kind of material were you getting rid of? And were these duplicates? Were they damaged books? What, what, what was it? The range, I mean, we clearly we established a criteria uh, and what, it's what I would describe as a housekeeping exercise. All we had done over the years is amassed material indiscriminately. We would buy anything that anybody had ever asked and maybe had only been looked at once since 1937. A lot of duplicates, a lot of hardbacks and paperback copies, but also some material that was no fit state uh, that had pages missing from it, material that was now available online, material that was no longer relevant. It gave us a once in a lifetime opportunity to actually physically handle every item in the collection, and that collection is over a million items. That excludes the archives. That was a huge piece of work. And now everything is electronically catalogued, everything has an RFID tag, everything is searchable, and actually will enable more people to access the gems that we have in the collection. So if you've got to go through every one of those million books, how many people did you have working for how long? 
We had a dedicated team of cataloguing staff during the transformation period, which was four years. I think that was roughly a team of 13 staff that assessed, catalogued, tagged, and then the material was sent back into storage to be brought back to the library in time for opening in 2014. Yeah, because, I mean, you hear rumours, nothing that anybody wants to say straight out, but you hear rumours of people saying that that shelf of books needs to go in the skip this afternoon. Is that, that's just not the, the process at all? Well, not that I'm aware of. Certainly wasn't the process. It was a painstaking process with a dedicated team of experienced library staff. Some campaigners have suggested that the cull was enforced simply by a lack of shelf space at the new building. Is that just wrong? We have more shelves in the new building than we had before. The whole focus of the transformation was about opening up the space and encourage improved access to the special collections and the treasures, making the space more relevant to customers. So with all that empty shelf space, how many new books have come in to to replace those 240,000 that have gone? Over the past couple of years, we have spent a considerable amount of money on new material, both reference and lending. The lending collection has expanded, as we've seen earlier on, in the lower ground floor and roughly accommodates about 130,000 volumes. We're also continuing to look at how we can add new collections that enhance the special collections and the archives. So I don't think we've got any spare shelf space. (laughs) Uh, Where we have, it's because there's so many books that have been borrowed, which is a fantastic thing to see. But you haven't got a figure at the top of your head about how many new things have come in as part of the refurbishment? Uh, Not off the top of my head, sorry. Books are very much at the future of of how you see it for for Manchester libraries. Well, we've walked around this afternoon and everywhere you go in this library, there is someone sitting reading. Be that a novel, be that a textbook, be that a historic item in the search room. There is no space in this library where you do not come across someone sitting and enjoying a book. And so what's next? Where next for for Manchester Libraries? Okay, well, we've recently just opened a new branch library where we've co-located Hume Library with the Leisure Centre. That is now open 90 hours per week, supported by 30-hour staff time, which is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. How does that work? Basically, we have a shared reception desk with our leisure team, and when the library staff are not present, the library is kept open because of the use of technology. So a customer can log on to a PC themselves, they can check the library catalogue themselves, they can reserve an item themselves to have it delivered at Hume Library if it's not already there. There is customer self-service that allows people to borrow items during the full opening hours of the library. They can print. There's nothing you can't do. And that's the vision, is to put these centres in places where people are all over the city? We took a decision many years ago never to have another standalone library in the city and also to look at where our libraries geographically are located. We want our libraries to be in the heart of the district centre. Ideally, we want our libraries to have glazed frontage so people can see people engaging in activity and enjoying the library space. And we want our libraries, as I say, where possible, to be co-located where we can have that cross-fertilisation of audiences and attract people people who would not normally go into library and actually think, ah, there's something here I want to do. Manchester's central library may be buzzing, but the broader picture remains bleak, with visitor numbers in the UK down 12% since 2010 and 16% over the last decade. With me to discuss these and other matters are Kate Moss, co-founder of the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, 
Eamon Butler, director of the Adam Smith Institute and library campaigner and retired publisher Desmond Clark. That's a gamekeeper turned poacher, if ever there was one. Absolutely. Or the other way around. <laughs> and perhaps we should start with some facts and figures. So, Desmond, how are public libraries doing in terms of visitor numbers and lending books? I quoted a few figures there. Are they accurate? Well, yes, they are accurate. But I think the first thing to remember is that visiting a public library is still by far the most popular cultural activity in this country, way ahead of anything else. Having said that, of course, only 35% of the population visited a public library in the last year, and there is quite an interesting difference. About 41% of women, but only 29% of men. Having said that, The visit numbers have dropped down now to 282 million in a year, which is a decline of just over 12%. And book lending in the same five-year period has sadly declined by 20%. Does this represent a decline in reading habits, or does it just mean that libraries are open less? No. uh, Reading generally is standing up remarkably well, and actually publishers on the whole are doing quite well. There is, of course, there have been a shift between printed books and e-books, but not that dramatic. I think what it represents is the fact that the library service itself is frankly leaderless and has been in crisis, and there have been significant cutbacks, particularly in librarians and in, above all else, in book stocks. In fact, The amount of money spent on bookstops is down dramatically in the last five years. And today, out of every one pound that's spent on the library service, less than seven pence is actually spent on books. And the the result of that is that you have many, frankly, rather tired libraries with not particularly attractive bookstops. And that is a turn-off to people. Eamon, does this matter (laughs) <laughs> yes, it certainly does. It is indeed a turn-off to people, and I was in my uh, local public library just the other day. Which is it, where? Which is in Cambridge, and it's not really a very nice and agreeable place to be. It's interesting how bookshops, uh, who face exactly the same pressures on, on people getting their information online much more, bookshops have, have responded, really, by making themselves quite nice places to be, and you can sit down on a sofa and get a cup of coffee and all, all the rest of it. This local library of ours is really a rather depressing sort of place, and it looks very much like it did 30 years ago. So I, I think the problem is that libraries simply haven't changed fast enough. They're going the way of video stores and <laughs> things like that if we don't watch it. And I think it really needs some new thinking. It's not just a case of spending more public money on it. I think we actually have to contract out the whole business. And libraries you know, should be in places where people go to. You know, my local library shouldn't be off the beaten track in a housing estate. It should be where people go to shop and other things. It really needs some fresh thinking. And I think that we could spend a lot more money on, on books, open for longer, employ more staff, have more readers and still save money. There's an interesting example that's just come up with um, the Manchester's lovely new central library, which um, in the process of this massive, great £17 million refurbishment managed to get rid of 240,000 of its old non-fiction books. Yes. <laughs> Kate, one of the things that's come up is, uh, that Desmond mentioned is that there are m- many more women users of libraries than men. 
That could be. I, I don't know about the figures. I mean, I think what is interesting is that what Eamon says is right and what Desmond said is right, um, that there does need to be some new thinking. There are many exceptional libraries that have opened um, in the last few years. Most of us as novelists have been to a lot of them, whether they're in Barking or the new Pimlico Library or Birmingham. And I come from Sussex and in Sussex and Hampshire, there have been a lot of new libraries opened. And they are a very different sort of place already. There are many like that. Such as? They are accessible in terms of exactly as Eamon says, in the middle of a high street, for example, in Portsmouth and Southsea, so that people can you know, go there as they're doing their shopping, they can go through. There's a sense that you have an openness to them. So rather than some of the older buildings, certainly where there was one door in, usually up a lot of steps and no other way out, you know, the idea that libraries are often on one single surface or have lifts in them, they're bright and they're colourful. And they are not simply about the idea that the only purpose of a library is to lend a book. Now, that is a very old-fashioned view of a library and a wonderful one and part of public service in the Victorian period and most of our great libraries came about at the same time as our great parks did. The idea that it was right that there should be free and open space for whomsoever chose to use it and it could be inside in a library or outside in a park. What we need now is an understanding that libraries are a community space. They do provide access to books, they also provide access to information, they also provide company, they also provide the way that we can have a more ambitious population with everybody knowing that there are skills and tools there that they are allowed to access. Whoever they are, whatever age they are, however much money they have or don't have, whatever their educational background. So I think part of the debate about what libraries should be, and I do think there needs to be a more rigorous going forward debate after many years of every interview starting with libraries are in crisis. Um, but I do think to remember at the heart of it that people need places to do their homework. People need places where they can be quiet. People need places not where they look information up that they know they need, but also that they go and somebody who knows says, have you ever tried this? And every single novelist you talk to will talk of a period in their life where it was somebody in a building who pressed a book into their hands and said, you know, you could do this too. And that is a very important thing to remember. It needs to be a 360-degree view of what libraries should be, not just whether the borrowing has gone down or up. That's a bit... what's not nuanced at all. What I don't see is how your vision of a library is any different to the libraries I knew when I was a child, which were quiet places that I went to after school where a nice person, if there was a nice librarian on duty, would press a book into my hand and I would sit and be part of a community. I agree. I, I don't think that that core vision is any different at all. I think that what's happened, though, within the debate about things, that firstly it has become about opening hours and stock and whether things should be paid for by local authority as part of the 1964 Act or if they should be privatised or if they should be volunteers. A lot of the debate fails to think about what it is that matters about these places. And I think in terms of the vision of the libraries going forward, quite often the debate comes around, well, everybody allegedly has access to a computer or internet at some point, they have smartphones, therefore we don't need libraries. Well, these are two utterly different things uh, because that's not simply what a library is about. So I think that the debate needs to move on in a more nuanced way and it needs to look about what was visionary about libraries, what still is appropriate, what isn't, what can be done to make them places that are welcoming for everybody because that is fundamental to a healthy, productive, inspirational and aspirational society that everybody feels that they've got a part to play and there's somewhere that they can go to be inspired to do so. Now you raised a bundle of things in that. Can we just unpick the bundle? Uh, Opening hours, 
Birmingham Central Library, lovely, whizzy, great new library, has you know opened great fanfare and has now just cut the opening hours from 70 hours to 40 hours a week. Surely they have to at least be open. Well, that building cost 180-something million pounds to build, and it cost £10 million pounds to a year to run. So, That's a lot of money to come out of a local authority budget. And I think it's probably... It's a sort of giantist programme. It's a giantist approach. I don't think it works. So you think that it was a mistake to open a big flagship library Absolutely. like that, do you? Absolutely. I think it's a complete white elephant. And what libraries ought to be is much closer to ordinary people where they are. We need smaller libraries. I mean, the, you can transport books so easily these days, and you can transport them electronically as well as physically. You don't need to have very large libraries with very large stocks. What you need is something which is going to be where people want to use it and it's pleasant to use. And now, I don't think any of that is going to happen as long as libraries are run by local authorities because local authorities have a 1,001 uh, strains on their budget and many of those demands are life and death demands, things like social care and things like road safety. Uh, I'm afraid libraries, which are really seen as a sort of you know, middle class entertainment, are never going to be to rise up that budget. We really need a quite radical rethink. So what do you think? Who should they be devolved to? Well, I think that w- they should be devolved to local people and to... Uh, I, I mean, we, we see in schools that parents and teachers are coming together and forming academies or free schools, as they're called. We need those kind of initiatives. I don't mind it being paid for by the government, but you need that kind of initiative so that people can assess what their own local need is rather than uh, for some distant council officials to be doing it. But as far as we can see, the move towards volunteers running libraries has been a complete failure, hasn't it, Desmond? Well, absolutely. So far, if we see this as one of the possible solutions. I mean, according to the Manchester Evening News, visiting numbers have plummeted by an average of 86% in libraries handed over to volunteers in 2013. Well, like all those things, you've got to be 14. careful of using statistics because they're, you know, they're a mean average. And there are some library authorities, by the way, which are actually increasing library visitors and library usage. Mm-hmm. It's not the same picture in every authority around the country. Um, so you're, you would argue with my figures that would seem to say that actually it's not been a success, the volunteer-run libraries? The answer is some of them will work and it's much easier in, shall we say, more comfortable middle-class areas to find people, retired professionals or whatever, who've got the time on their hands and are very happy to come and play li- being librarian. The problem is in the more deprived areas where it's very difficult to get volunteers who could actually run the libraries. And if you take an authority like Bolton, where the council was decided to close a number of libraries because they didn't believe that handing over to volunteers was sustainable in the longer term. But there now seems to be a third movement. Councils are now looking at handing their library services over to charitable mutuals, as they're called. Uh, the first one was in York, we've seen a similar sort of development in uh, Suffolk, and now Devon is now talking about handing over all its libraries to a mutual. It's basically handing over the problem. So it's almost like privatising it, but to a charity, is it, Eamon? I would privatise it. I mean, if, if I was asked as a volunteer to take control of our local branch library, which I mentioned, the first thing I would do is knock it down and sell the land off the building. And then I would... Woo. Yes, and I would use the money to relocate those books in the local Italian delicatessen and coffee shop. What do you think of that, Kate? The reason that I think that there needs to be some central spine of libraries is, firstly, the rest of the world looks on with 
a mixture of bemusement and horror. The British Library Service is seen as something fundamental to the idea that every child, every person, has the same access to the same levels of information. And that is why the idea of a central spine, government-run, and it being part of who we are as a reflection of who we are as people who live in Britain, is fundamental to it. So I don't think that it should all be hived off at all, because apart from anything else, you will end up with the situation that ends up in anything when you privatise it all, which is in some places people will think this and believe that these sorts of books should be available and other places they will think that and uh, you will discover quite soon uh, that certain sorts of information are seen as more valuable than others and when you have a central governmental uh, view which is this is what we think in this country, this is what we believe is appropriate and available for everybody, then there is at least an idea of a benchmarking, which is what our values are, and I think that's fundamental. Secondly, though, I do agree that the way of having mixed partnerships is something really worth looking at. So in every other area of the arts, say, as opposed to the education and public service and health, there is an understanding that government cannot bear all the costs and that actually, therefore, particular partnerships that work with private companies or private individuals is a way of providing the additional funds to make all of these visionary ideas come to fruition. And so I do think there should be a possibility where individual libraries run by the local authority, properly governed from central government, but that actually individuals at the same time, different authorities, being able to make relationships with their local delicatessen or indeed with us for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. We every year buy the entire long list and we give it to the library service and we hold book clubs in all of the libraries to talk about each of the 20 books on the long list. Now these sorts of partnerships, the money comes from the commercial sponsor but they are working with local authorities and I think that sort of mixed partnership is a more appropriate way of looking at providing both a really good service and access to education and books for all but also making it 21st century and making it more appealing. Well, I'm now going to, I'm going to cut you off there and I'm going to just ask one last question. We are all agreed that there should be libraries, are we? Yes. Absolutely. Oh, are you, Eamon? Not as we know them. So you, would, you, you think absolutely a root and branch reform? I'd like to see something that in five years' time you and I don't actually recognise, that it's so novel and so new and so inspiring that, you know, we're, we're aghast. Could, could I just... I know I'm not the... Just turn it round, though, Eamon... Do you believe that books should be available to anyone who wishes to read them, regardless of cost? So that people who do not have the finances to buy a book still have access to that book, I would, free of charge? Well, I, like many things, uh, clothing and food, I don't think that it should be provided free by the government. I think that we should give people the money to get access to those services. And one of the things that we've got to do is to define what a library is actually all about. What's its purpose? And what are the standards that we want somebody who's running a library to, to produce? And I think we haven't actually got that right yet. We haven't got it in, fixed in our brains. Thanks to Kate Moss, Eamon Butler and Desmond Clark. For more literary discussion, head to the Guardian Books website, sign up for our free podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. From me, Claire Armistead, from Richard Lee and our producer, Eva Krishak, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.